You're listening to the Pulled by the Root podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Heidi Marble. I am really, really happy to share this episode with you with transracial adoptee Heather Lewis. Heather reached out to me through our website to share her compelling story, and compelling it is. She was abandoned in Korea, and the trajectory of her life is nothing less than miraculous. Her story has so many twists and turns. There is tragedy and hope and triumph. And she is still in the middle of figuring out reunion. We dive into all the nooks and crannies of what it is to be transracially adopted. This episode really opened up my eyes, especially as a domestic adoptee, to the bigger, broader picture of what it means to be adopted from a global sense. I hope that you get as much out of this episode as I did. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Pulled by the Root podcast. I am overjoyed today to introduce you to adoptee Heather Lewis. Her story is absolutely riveting. She actually shared her adoption documents with me, and it's the first time I've ever held documents in my hand. And it was a powerful experience, to say the least, to be able to experience that. And I would like to read Heather's bio. Heather was found on the streets of Busan in 1973, adopted July of 1973 to a family in Michigan at six months old. She grew up in a small town named Hemlock with one blinking stoplight. She went to school K through 12 in Hemlock, then went to college at Saginaw Valley State University. She has three master's degrees, a master's in curriculum and teaching, a master's in critical studies and teaching and English, and a master's in business administration. She currently works for Apple in the Apple Professional Learning Group, who trains teachers with their Apple devices. She is married with one daughter, one stepson, loves musicals, has a minor in theater, has been in community theater, taught ballroom dancing, and taken classical ballet for 15 years. The arts have been an important part of her life, whether it be music or dance. Well, Heather, I think I'm really concerned that you haven't done enough. <laughs> this, is, this, is an ama- this is an amazing bio. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Oh, so, you're so kind. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Heather. I think it would be really powerful just for you to start wherever you would like to. And I just want to sit back and, and listen and allow our listeners and viewers to, to absorb your story. So my parents um, had tried to have a biological child and they could not after many tries. And so um, they looked to adoption as an option for them um, to have a family. They looked at domestic adoptions first, um, but they were actually given a child. Um, they held the child. They thought they were going to have a, an adoption um, finalized. And then for some reason, it didn't happen. Um, I know my mother was very distressed about that. She's got some journals that I read, um, but I don't know why that the, the child was taken away. Um, so I think that's probably what led them to do an international adoption. And at that time in the 70s, um, Korea was sending lots of children, um, offering up lots of children for adoption. Um, so at uh, six months in 1973, I came over from Seoul, Korea, and started my life in Michigan. Um, I have two brothers, um, one brother who was adopted. So after they got me, I think it was about three, 
they wanted another child. And I think once you have, um, you know, a daughter, you can ask for gender. And so they asked for a son. Um, they, and then they received my brother, um, who I am not biologically related to. Um, but at about a year and a half to two years, they realized that my brother was not progressing. He was, he thought maybe hearing loss. Um, but then they realized that he's severely autistic and ended up with a diagnosis. Um, I, autism, what it is now today, it's not like, um, he's not like that. I mean, he's definitely has more mental retardation, uh, has no verbal skills. He, he lives in a home now. Um, he's like 40, 45 years old and he has to have 24 hour care. Um, so, so there was, there was me who was the Asian daughter. There was my brother who is not only Asian looking different than um, his parents, but also severely autistic. So now he's got a whole nother, you know, ball of wax with him. And then there's my youngest brother who is their biological child. So I'm 10. They find, and I've heard this before about the story they adopt. And then finally they can have a biological child of their own. And so I have a younger brother um, who is 10 years younger than I am. So there's five of us in our family. So yeah, you know, well, as I said, so in my bio, um, you know, I say I grew up in this town with one blinking stoplight. I think by the time I got to high school, they put in the one with the three colors. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> really moving up. <laughs> yes, right. So, you know, it's um, it's, it's definitely a small town. I had 120 kids in my graduating class. Everybody knows everybody. Um, you, you know, it, it's, you don't escape the small town and growing up, I hated it growing up. It was, it seemed terrible, but now as an adult, looking back, I, I of course probably wiped out a lot of bad things. And I just remember the beautiful memories and, um, and the closeness of a small town that you can't get, of course, in a, in a larger community. But yeah, it's, so I spent most of, you know, my growing up there and in a small town and, and we and we definitely stuck out. Um, besides the fact that we're Asian, and my my parents, um, I don't know if you saw a picture, you got to see a picture of them. But <laughs> as as they progressed, I don't know. We joked they turned Amish without adopting Amish ways. My father grew this long beard, and we always joked um, that his hair was upside down. <laughs> And, you know, my mother is, an, was, uh, you know, a slightly overweight, strawberry blonde. Um, they, we, I, we just could not look more different than, you know, than anyone in the family. So, so knowing that you're different has never, <laughs> never been a secret in, in our family. Yeah, I think that's one thing I'm learning as I'm being more and more educated because I'm domestically adopted is that when you're, uh, transracially adopted intercountry that you're not only losing your bio family, but you're losing your culture and your language. And there's so many layers, so many compound traumas. And when you go to seek, it becomes even more complicated and more difficult. And so it's really important to hear these stories and that the issues surrounding adoption are global. And, and it's pretty catastrophic when you look at it in a whole and I think, Heather, when I read oh, what you sure. wrote about like how you were found and all of that, I think it's so compelling that you're the seventh 
daughter, you know, whoa. So if you could take us back even before you arrived here and share your very, very beginnings as you know them, I think that would be really interesting for people to hear. Sure. So, so evidently, and the story I received comes from um, my sick sister. She was born in 71 and I was born in 73. Um, and as she, she of course does not have memory. So she's talking to the older sisters. I believe the oldest sister might be about 12 to 14 years older than I am. And they're all trying to collectively remember the way they say it, they remember there was a baby. They remember they left for school and they came home and the baby was gone. That was one sister's story. Um, when we were talking about um, where where I was found in my in my adoption papers, it says that I was left on the uh, Sunjung apartment complex, and then one of my sisters thought she remembered leaving me in the Sujung area because that was supposedly a rich area. And they figured I would be found then for sure and taken care of. So it was like a purposeful thing. So, so beyond that, then I I'm left, I'm, I'm gone. And the reasoning of all this, of course, is that um, my family, I guess, was trying to have a son, my mother. And I, from the stories, I guess it was pressure from her in-laws having to have that boy, having to have that son, very important in their, in the Korean culture and for their family. And so she has, she keeps popping out all these girls, much to her dismay. And then even my, my sister, number six, she was a twin. And I was told um, one day the father went away to work, came home, the twins were gone. Um, where are they? Well, I, I dumped them. I left them. The father goes back out to search for the twins to get them back. He finds them, brings them home, but then one of the twins ends up dying. And so it's this pressure to have a boy that led them and the extreme poverty that they have. They can't keep caring for all these children. Um, I've asked my sister for stories of growing up and she's, she, they did talk about times of having to sift through garbage in the market, um, not having food. And uh, I mean, I, I was just trying to make a connection with her one time and she was talking about working at a restaurant. And I was like, oh, I worked at a restaurant. You know, I worked just somewhere at Olive Garden. And I said, <laughs> oh, so what was that like? And she was like, oh, no, I, I don't want to talk about hard times. It's just too sad. And, and, and I think there's such a disconnect for the two of us because of the way I grew up and how, of course, I'm, I just want to find out everything as much as possible, but she's more guarded because there's some real painful memories that she has. And I'm, I'm guessing some resentment, uh, not necessarily toward me, just for, for having to fight and work so hard, you know, your entire life and always trying to find a way out. And and that's all me. That's all on me. I'm just, I'm just, you know, overanalyzing everything like I always do it but try, <laughs> trying to make that story because sometimes that that helps me build empathy you know for experiences that I just can't I just can't even probably understand truly yeah Heather and I can you tell people also how were you able to find your birth family because I know a few people that I'm interviewing they can't find anyone how, how did you go about 
getting your hands on this paperwork and then clearly being able to connect with your bio family. Can you tell us about that process and what it was like when you, when you found them? Sure. So, um, so that, you know, I was fortunate that my parents did keep um, a lot of uh, my paperwork and everything. And there's, there's a lot of adoptees who either um, the parents don't have it anymore just because, or there's no relationship with their adopted parents, so they can't get it. Um, So, if you don't have your paperwork, you have to ask the whatever um, organization you were adopted through. I was adopted through Holt. Um, you have to request your file. And then if you're over in Korea, they will sit down with you and go over your file. Um, but even then, I've heard stories that um, just because that's what it says in your file doesn't mean it's true. Um, mine happened to be true, but some people said that they were abandoned and they're like, no, no. And then once they find out you weren't, you weren't abandoned, a relative stole you, dropped you off because they didn't want you in our family. And I mean, just so many crazy stories about, you know, how, how these babies end up in an orphanage. Um, and also there's the idea that, um, women are, single mothers are targeted and being paid to give up their child. And that's a whole other issue as well. And so you can't really put that in paperwork. Um, so you're lying and saying abandoned on the or found on the street type thing. Um, so, so you start with the paperwork, but there's so many dead ends with the paperwork. Um, a lot of us are turning to DNA, um, which is really a lifesaver. And so I, for me, as soon as 23andMe came out, I signed up right away because I'm like, I'd love a blood relative. I mean, I found, I found a sixth cousin. And then when you chuckle, because you probably have hundreds of six cousins out there, yes. but that's all, that's all we have, you know? And so I'm traveling to, to meet a sixth cousin. He was down visiting into San Antonio and I'm like, I'll drive down to see you. You know, it's just, you're so excited to meet someone who has a tinge of DNA with you because you don't have anyone. Um, so 23andMe was really my only option. So this past September 2020 is when I get a message in 23andMe. Um, and the message, um, I can just read it for you. It said, hello, my name is Jessica. I took 23andMe a few years ago, and I just noticed we share 28% of the same DNA. And there's a chance we could be related on my mother's side. I hope you take no offense to this, but after speaking with my aunt, with my aunt and my mom, born 71, she said she had a younger sister who was put up for adoption in South Korea. Is there a chance we could be related? I mean, that's my world stopped right then. We were making dinner. I looked at my husband and I was like, I, I don't know if this is real. I mean, I can't. Things like this don't happen. Don't happen to me. This I would because I look at this as good luck. I mean, I look at this as what I've been searching for my entire life. And I'm like, why is it real? And the first thing my husband goes to is, oh, no, is, is this a scam? Is someone trying to scam you out of money? And I'm like, it's 23 and me. I don't think I, I don't think I people don't. have gotten that level yet. Um, <laughs> you know, hopefully I'm, not. Like if you're looking for me, right. I'm like, and if you're looking for money, you're barking up the wrong tree. But so. So luckily, there's this group called 325 Camera, and they have a, a website and a Facebook page, and they're out there to help um, adoptees, Korean adoptees find their biological connection. And so when I said that I think I have a match through, um, which which Jessica would be my niece, they said, let's get the mother's DNA, because if the mother's DNA matches and your sister's, then you know for sure. 
So they sent out a kit. I mean, they do this, they're a nonprofit. They sent out a kit to Jessica's mother. She did the kit. She I uploaded it up to, um, I think, Ancestry DNA. I uploaded mine to Ancestry DNA. So we waited. So we're like cautiously excited, but now you have to wait. <laughs> so then you're waiting for, you know, is it going to be? And yeah, of course, sure enough. But then while we were waiting, I mean, I'm sharing baby photos of me. And of course, my sister doesn't have any baby photos, but she's got the, the pictures of her daughter when she was a baby. And I'm like, Oh, oh my gosh. And then I have a dog. I have, she has one daughter. I have one daughter. There's lots of similarities that we have that are just crazy. And, uh, and sure enough, I'm like, Oh my gosh, they could, they could be sisters. And then we look at their pictures. Now they are definitely related. Oh my. And so I, we all knew it, but we were just waiting for that DNA to like, you know, confirm. Yep. That's it. So what, what was that like for you? It, it was overwhelming. It was surreal. It, it, you don't, you don't think it's real. Um, it, to know that I, I have, I, I have a place for answers that I have. And I think, I mean, I was so excited and happy, but I think the most, the most impactful moment was um, they found a FaceTime app called smoothie, which I guess is what they use in Korea because they not everybody has an iPhone. And so I get on smoothie and there's like three other sisters that in Korea that are all on my screen. And I look at the face and it's, I'm looking at myself back at me. I, it was, it was just the, the, it's like, so like it fills. Oprah used to always have this thing. She talked about, you know, we all have a hole inside of us. And how you fill that hole inside means how how comforted you are and how comfortable you are with yourself and and your happiness. You're like you know your your happy meter. And I think she got that from um, the Shalom in the Home gentleman. Um, he's just fa- fabulous, you know, spiritual spiritual guiding ways of life. But having that face, I, it just totally it it filled my hole it was like I felt complete I was like that's all I ever wanted was to stare into another face that looked that looked like me I mean that you know you've got those families where they're like oh those must be the McDonald's or those must be all you could tell your sisters you know I mean people would call me Chrissy Yamaguchi and I'm like I don't look like Chrissy Yamaguchi what are you talking about (laughs) I'm like oh right that's the only other Asian person you know (laughs) so you think I look like them you know that is so not okay (laughs) I I can't imagine (laughs) yeah it's it's so that that moment of having them on the screen and it still takes me aback like it's so funny and then my when my husband sees you know our FaceTime and he's just like he'll look at the screen he'll do a double take because it's just not weird seeing more than one of me (laughs) you know around and then to find out and it's so funny because she's like she tells me that we're very strong-willed and I and I chuckle I'm like oh is that genetics (laughs) 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 she's like well then our last name is no and she's like no family we're very stubborn and we sometimes speak our mind too much and I'm just everyone's like oh surprise (laughs) you didn't really need a genetic test to know that you know Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, my goodness, Heather. So you meet your sisters. And I don't know your experience. But for me, 
Like I felt like no one existed in my search except finding my birth mom. I didn't even consider that there could be more like that. I had a birth father. (laughs) It's like, I just had a birth mom. It was just crazy. But I think because after, especially after becoming a mother, that bond is, is so intense. And to realize that that was severed in some way, I don't know. I think that's the person most of us want to pivot toward for answers. And I wonder what was your, was she still alive when you found her? Did you have any interaction? Were you able to, um, you know, experience it, her at any level? So, um, so finalizing the family um, was basically September. So that, that all of those emotions and things coming in. Um, and then October 7th, I was told that my biological mother had passed. So from September to October, I'm seeing pictures of her. I'm told, you know, about her. Um, But then I'm also told that she was already in a home and had severe Alzheimer's and dementia. And so there were times, I guess, that um, she didn't even know who the sisters were when they came in. And they just really didn't want to get my hopes up that she would even remember me because it's been so long, you know. Um, And then we have COVID going on at the same time. So any plans I had of, of physically meeting my sister here in the States or meeting the other five sisters in Korea or getting over to see my, my birth mother before anything happens are out the window. So that's a huge disappointment. And then to find out that she passed. So now the sisters told me that before she went, they let her know that they had found me and that she had cried. And so that was super comforting to me to know that she knew. And then one of the sisters told me that she thought it was probably in the late eighties that she did vocalize wanting to find me. And so I I was, I was really surprised about that. Um, But of course they had no idea what happened to me. I mean, they left me on the doorstep. So they didn't even know if I, if I was even in Korea or if I was where I was. Um, so it was just kind of, I guess, a thought. But um, so my, my father had already, my biological father had already passed. Um, he actually, I found out, committed suicide. Um, I, I think all the girls were gone, grown. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I don't know really anything because, again, language barriers and they don't want to talk mm-hmm. about sad times. And so... Um, they just let me know that he had passed. And so, so he was gone before. Oh, and I do, I did have a brother. Um, they finally did get that boy <laughs> on the, you know, eighth times a charm. So I had a younger brother, but in his twenties, he was breaking up a bar fight and fell. And I'm guessing had a concussion because he went home and then um, passed in his sleep and he was 20. So, so he's already been cremated and I guess, um, his ashes were spread out in Busan, um, and in, in the, in the sea. But oh, so, gosh, so yeah, there's all these little snippets of, um, of, I, I almost have it and then it's gone. And, you know, there's a lot of other adoptees. We, we talk about how we think that finding your birth parents would as beautiful and neat as it is it's going to solve and kind of bring you closure, but it just opens up a whole nother 
whole nother bag of issues, you know, and questions that you might not get the answers for. And, you know, like simple things like your birthday. I saw when they found me, the doctors guessed my birthday. So, you know, we don't really know, of course. Um, so I'm thinking, oh, I have a family now. Someone will remember. My, okay. Besides the fact that the, they use a lunar calendar, a lot of them still. So now you've got yeah. that whole issue going on. And then no one, I mean, the oldest, the, the oldest sibling, she was probably only 13 or 14. I'm sure that she's not going to commit my birthday to memory. You know, it's just those things. And now with the mother being gone, but even if she wasn't gone, I think there's many instances where they just, it's just not as important that that date of birth is just not as a big deal as it is for us here. You know? Yeah, that's so complicated to speak to other adoptees and people that are listening. When I went into reunion, I wasn't prepared at all. I had the fantasy about what it would be. And, and I ended up having a very good experience compared to most, but it actually destroyed the relationship with my adopted mom. So there were all these guilt and, and, you know, we won't go into yeah. all of that, but I think one of the right. things, you know, that I want people to, to do is to learn from those of us that have gone down this path. And I think for you, this is all very fresh. Like all of this has happened to you in a very short period of time. And I wonder like what you could tell other people that are, that are seeking, like, how can they like ground themselves so that they're, as ready as one can be for all of this mystery that you don't, you don't know what you're going to find. And it, it takes a lot out of you to discover. Yeah. I, I definitely feel that um, the having realistic expectations um, is, is very important that um, that is not going to be a fix all. And that at any if there's if there's any hurt that you have, anything outward isn't going to mend that hurt. It's something that we have to find internally. And, you know, I, I have such pride in the family that I've created that with my daughter and that my I have that biological connection with her and the life that I've created, that that has to be your grounding of what you're creating in the present. Because what happened in the past you have no control over and it may not provide you the answers that you're looking for. And, and that is difficult. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't have, I think I'm lucky because I don't have any, re, any additional rejection, but I know that there's possibilities with finding with other adoptees when they're, the mother doesn't want to talk to the adoptee because she's moved on to a, a different part of her life and she's never told the new husband, the new family that she gave up a baby back when she was whatever age and, and they don't want to complicate it. And that's hard, you know, to hear that not only, I mean, in my head, not only did you give me up once, but now that I found you, you've given me up twice. And, and that's, if you go, you know, if you go in with that mindset, that's, that's going to tear you apart. Um, you know, the only thing I can think of is that you need to be grounded that, that that's her life. And, and even though it's going to hurt if she doesn't want to be a part, that, that it's her loss, that she doesn't get to have you in her life and that you've made a beautiful life. And that's what you're going to need to concentrate on. You can't rely on her to fix what you have inside when I'm guessing she probably can't even fix it herself. She can't fix herself. 
because that's a part of her that she's probably closed off because it's too painful, you know, to even think, especially for those of us who have had children. I did, that was a pivotal moment, I think, for a lot of us that have our own child is seeing that child at the age that we were given up. When so, like when Sophie hit six months, that that's what that was really that was really tough to look at that six month old child and think someone took this baby and left it on the doorstep and just hoped she was going to be okay. I mean, I, 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 I can't even imagine the mentality of doing that. And I don't fault that woman for it because that's what she did in her time period for her choices and her life. You know, I'm, I'm not going to blame her for that because that, that's what she needed to do for her. But this is my life and this is what I need to do for me, you know. So. Yeah, it's so powerful to like have those motherly instincts toward our own child and then imagine that being usurped by the desperation of whatever's going on. And, and you know, I think and it remind me if I'm wrong, Heather, but you said that your six, sister actually took you and left you like. It wasn't even your mom. Like, imagine your—I mean, right? Is that oh, what you're was, saying? Your, I, your I sister think she took them. Oh, okay, I think she was okay. with them. Yeah, as like, far as oh I know. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that would be so painful this for was, a but sibling. This was like a family thing. Yeah. It's oh, weird. I don't. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. it's it's very very hard to to understand, and I think that's why also seeking the truth can be important because you can at least start to put the mystery in some sort of context and you know when I'm looking at your adoption paperwork I think one of the things that startled me Heather was just like just a couple of things that you had vigorous moving hands and legs that you looked alert um, that you were undernourished that you were sensitive to strangers and that you were poorly fed. And I'm reading all of this and I'm just like, they make it seem so clinical. And then there are pictures of you with your original name and it looks like some kind of a number. And I just, oh my goodness. For whole all of us get, a, we call it the K number. <laughs> we all have a K number and with Holt. And so, um, and I, I think we, we honor that as our beginning and that is our beginning. And then, you know, there's a lot of theory about um, children not being held enough in that beginning time period, how that actually affects like with attachment um, disorder. And so adopt, we as adoptees talk about that a lot as well. Um, but I took the first couple lines of those adoption papers and I ended up um, incorporating it on one of my tattoos. And so, um, oh, so I have Heather. the Korean blossoms that you can see behind me, the cherry blossoms. I'm trying to bend my arm. I purposely oh. put it there because it is hard to see. I mean, I see it all the time, but, you know, outwardly, you don't see it. But then I had a friend write all of the Korean for me at the time. Cause I still, I'm not great at writing, um, Hankel. Um, but I put the two lines and that's in there. The, the K number is in there. The date that they found me is in there and, and the place, because that's the only beginning we have, you know, that's where we identify as our start because we don't have anything else. And so a lot of us have that sense of want of wanting more, you know? 
Wow, that's so beautiful, Heather. I hope you'll send us a picture of that so we can share it because I think I think it's just a way of getting a piece of yourself back and committing it like to your skin to actually taking claim. It's just that that moved me a lot. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And you know, Heather, as we kind of move through the interview and you know, you've been through you've been through a lot, but this is a lot. And I we deeply value I deeply value as well the creative expression and art and dance and all the things that you value as well. For me, the arts have been a way to actually express a voice that couldn't be heard in any other way. And I just wonder mm-hmm. if you could talk about this because I think adoptees uh, have so much that they have to cope with. And I think trying to lean into healthier coping is really a great idea because the statistics are against us. You know, we're overrepresented in all the mental illnesses. And and if there is something we can do to get some relief, you could speak to how you have coped or continuing to cope and maybe what the arts have meant to you and how that's um, helped you maybe stabilize or express or work through the difficulties. Yeah, I think, you know, the the arts have been very important um, as a self-expression and a way to be able to also release. So you've got all this emotion, you've got all these questions, and it's kind of like the people who get really into exercise or really into running. I mean, there's that cathartic feeling of um, after dancing where you just feel peaceful afterwards and spent, like, okay, I've been able to say my piece, even though it wasn't verbal. Um, so I, I think I've always been attracted to the arts as a, a creative way to express myself. Um, plus the fact that my mind is always thinking it's hard to turn off, um, you know, and, and so it's good to have a place for that to go out. Um, there's this, you know, for a lot of us, there's a show on um, right now, if you're in the network television called This Is Us. Um, and it, the, it's funny when I watch it because I'm like, are the writers following me and then writing their episodes after they watch my month, you know, but the, the, the character Randall who is adopted, um, he, I don't know who's writing his script, but they are nailing it like all the time when he looked at his dad and, um, and, you know, and, and Randall's black and his dad's white. And, you know, his dad makes some comment about when I look at you, Randall, all I see is my son. And he's like, the dad, you're not seeing me. You don't get it. And I'm just like, it was just, you know, the light bulb goes off and it's like, oh, I go, how many times did I hear growing up? Oh, it's Heather. It's just Heather. You know, I'm like, I know I'm just Heather to you. But when I opened the door at Olive Garden and I got, I got, complimented that my my English was really good I'm like they're clearly not seeing Heather they're seeing this Asian face I mean and those are daily occurrences that happen you know as growing up being being Asian in a in a white world basically Um, but most recently Randall's gone to this adoptee support group and they're sharing things in this group and all of us are going where is this group? Can we, can we join this group? <laughs> There's things like he, he never, um, they gave a name to the a ghost kingdom. 
which is their imaginary family that they create because they haven't found their family. And he just always attributed it to he created what his mom really was like or his dad was like. And of course, they were black. And so we have these ghost kingdoms. And so I never thought about it that way. But it's like having a therapist or a, a group to talk to is, is I think, a, it's a must for adoptees. And if, if you're fine and you're happy and you don't need to explore anything, kudos to you. Because I don't think people should be forced into sharing if they don't want to share but if you're looking for a place for your voice to be heard or you're looking for a place where you want to be somewhere where someone else looks at you and goes i get it you don't even have to explain it i get it um um, those are like the there's many korean adoptee groups on facebook that we all can share as a safe place um here in austin when i moved to austin texas i searched for some and we slowly pieced together and we're up to about 25 people who live locally and pre-COVID we were getting together at least once a month you know and and just sharing in the the daily celebrations of life with our children and our families but also being able to talk about someone found their birth family someone you know and, and be having someone else to share that with so that they look at you and they get it without having to explain and they see you and they know that the, the duality that you have, that strangers see an Asian woman, but my friends and family just see me for me, which is great. But you, you can't discount that other side because I don't get to live in a bubble, you know. No, thank you so much for explaining that, Heather, because that experience has to be so painful. Um, you know, I sort of look like my adopted family, but I would get questioned. And I remember when that happened, it made me feel even more other. I think it really does need to be appreciated and understood. And I I hope I'm not overstepping, but it seems like, like, you know, ignoring that is probably the worst thing you could do. Um, In in my mind, anyway, you know, I, I don't know if you agree with that or not the support groups and finding the arts and ways to connect and heal in community, because I don't know your experience growing up adopted, but I always felt that I had to be whatever they wanted at any given moment. Um, There was always this tension of wanting to be good enough to, and I don't even know if I realized it until I was older, but uh, that was kind of the experience. So being able to be in a space where you can be you and be understood is really invaluable. I, you know, we, we have stories um, of tell me the, tell me the moment you realized you were different. And, um, and mine, I always chuckle at it. Um, In second grade, my teacher decided to do a contest where we all sneak in our baby pictures and she put them up on the board And then we all had to guess who was who up on the board. And I laughed so hard that I, I snuck my picture in so that nobody would know it was my picture that was going up. Like I had no effing clue that, that everybody was going to guess my picture. I mean, I guess that'd be, it's a testament to how much I was loved and protected and felt like, um, you know, I was, just 
a normal part of life. But then we're sitting there and we had to write down who we thought each picture was. And everybody guessed me. And I was shocked. My little second grade self was like, how does everybody know who I am? <laughs> oh, Heather, I'm sorry. It's not funny, but it is. I mean, it just, show, right? it just shows you like the level of denial like that we're in. It's powerful. <laughs> It's powerful. So how like, how, how could you not know? <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, oh Heather. Oh my gosh. Well, I think that's a really good talking point for people because you know I always felt other in some way, shape, or form. When I had my own son, that's when there was such a disruption in my own life and such an intensity to know more and to understand. And then I began to think about, I've also been talking to adoptees who are parents now. And it's so interesting, like if you think about our history also becomes their history. And if we, wow, like think about that, you know, they also lose that part if we don't try to find it or it it just, it, it just kind of stretches the pain through the generations. And I, how has being adopted like affected your parenting? I know we were talking about helicopter parenting and I was like, Oh boy, I'm like, (laughs) so I just, I just, you know, do you, how is that? How is that going in your life? (laughs) Well, you know, I, I laugh and I don't, I, I try, I try to be, I know I'm very controlling and I, I joke that the tiger mom clearly went genetically through me it's not anything that was nurtured, but I joke with my daughter because now she's, I, I did marry a white, a white man. And so she's half. And so we, we joke that when she's not around me, she's ethnically ambiguous. And <laughs> but if I stand beside her, everyone's like, oh yeah, you're Asian. Okay. Yeah. So, but, um, but if she has a child as she gets older and, and her partner is white, now we're down to a quarter and then if that that child's partner is white I'm gone that's like I have thought that in like in two generations I could be wiped out which kind of flips me out a little bit and I'm like like four generations on the line they're gonna look up online my picture's gonna be there and some kid's gonna look at their mom and go we're Asian (laughs) and because I could totally disappear. And so I like, there's like ha ha pressure on my daughter. So, you know, yeah, a little arranged to find an Asian. <laughs> yes. I happy to have even like Mexican. So the dark hair comes in. I'm like, come on, throw me a oh, bone Heather, here. You're going to have to keep me posted. <laughs> oh my gosh. As far as like raising her, I, I don't, I don't know. Cause I, I'm probably a big, I don't think adoption has really affected me so much on that. Um, except for my own personal selfishness of being excited to have a biological tie, you know, as far as the way she's raised, I can't really imagine um, all like, I, I like to think my decisions were made based on the way I was raised just by personality because my mm-hmm. own mother was quite controlling and my own mother, I mean, there were these, um, expectations that real or not were clearly established of the, I'm not doing good enough. I'm not, I don't, I am, I'm not 
performing like I'm supposed to be, whatever it is I'm doing. And she was actually, for a white lady, she was almost Asian because it'd be like, I'd get the A minus and she'd be like, great, but, you know, could you have gotten the A, you know, type thing. So so those types of things, I really tried to, to the things that I, I didn't, another way, another bad thing where you try to from, from wound to womb, where I try to fix my own wounds through the womb, but that's silly because my daughter's wounds aren't going to be the same as my wounds. So I'm really healing something that's not broken. <laughs> so probably creating more neuroses, but you know. <laughs> well, I mean, that's Anyways. fair. And yeah. And uh, before we start to, to move on to closing, I would really love to talk to you more about what it was like growing up with your adopted parents, you know, and um, you know, you said you're, when did you kind of come to terms with them and are you at peace with them? Are they still around? What can you tell us? So, so yeah, so both of my parents, um, I, I had a great adoption. Um, I never attributed to my, my problems with my parents because of my adoption or because of my otherness. Um, I just always felt that with personality and just your growing pains of, you know, parent child things. Um, but as a community and as a country, you're never, you never forget you're different. And and like I said, with my brother being autistic, I mean, everywhere we went, whether it was Cedar Point, whether it was, we would go to Gatlinburg or, you know, my parents were cute little country people. So we would go to Nashville. We would do all these trips down South. And I mean, we stuck out like a sore thumb and, and my brother would often, my dad would have to go back to the non-air conditioned van and sit with him for hours while mom and I could do something because he was real fit or he would start making weird noises and then everybody looks and scared. And so not only are people looking at us because we don't look like a, a, a nuclear family, then my brother's also doing it. So so that, that had a lot on um, constantly feeling like I was um, had a spotlight on me. And I think I started to grow up and own that. So maybe let's act out or be boisterous, the theater part. Let's be over the top um, because now I'm in control of why people are staring at me and own that. Um, I, I have a feeling that had some to play in it. Um, but my, I, I know one another issue is how, like you said, how does the adoptive parent feel about a birth parent search? Because there's a lot of, of emotion involved in that and, and, and resentment because it's hard, I think, for the adoptive parent to understand that we might have this need, but that doesn't mean that we don't love you and, and appreciate you, you know, for who you were, my, my mom. Um, but for me, I didn't go to go through any of that because um, two years ago, my parents both passed. Um, my mom had broken a hip. She medically was having trouble taking care of herself. My father had Alzheimer's. Um, which is interesting that the Alzheimer parallel from both, no matter which family it is, I can't get away from it. Um, and, and being, I, I said it to my cousin, I said, my father um, shot my mother and then he killed himself. And I don't think other people understand my, my father's decision. If you aren't a farmer, if you aren't, if you didn't grow up in the country, if you didn't grow up in that time period, because I said to my cousin, I, my, you know, my, my, my adopted family's cousin, I said, 
I get why my dad did that as much as it hurts. And and my cousin Carmen said, yeah, I, I understand too. Because my father loved my mom unconditionally. I mean, they were, they were married over 50 years. Uh, you know, he went to, he went in service, came back, got a job on the line at GM, stayed there forever, worked, worked, worked his butt off, hard worker, loving man. Um, but he knew that my mom wouldn't go into a home. He knew he couldn't take care of her and Alzheimer's just scared the hell out of him. And he, I know he was just terrified. And I, I think that's what the, the fear of it. And then knowing that this is, this is the time and he made that decision. So. Oh, Heather, so, I can't even, I can't even imagine yeah. getting that news. Oh, he did it on Christmas to boot. I'm like, really, no. dad, really? So my brother had to call me. My brother lived about a half hour down the road. So he called us one Christmas, two Christmas mornings ago. And that's how we woke up that morning. So, so yeah, so, I mean, that was a lot to deal with. Um, but, but it, that's, I truly believe um, that it, had my mother been alive, she would have been very resentful and hurt that I wanted to find my adopt, my, my biological mother. But, but the mother who she's become up in heaven, I think that this is me finding my, my family, my, uh, my biological family is the gift from my parents. I have no doubt that my parents um, gave this gift to me from, from afar. No matter what you believe in, you know, I'm Christian. My husband, my husband believes in something's out there. He's just not wholly convinced <laughs> what it is. Um, but, but be it whatever the powers of the universe that, that you believe in that, that, that spirit, I, I know, I know they gave this gift to me, the gift of finding a biological tie. Well, and you know, Heather, as much tragedy as you've, you know, expressed that has happened to you, you must also be looking so forward to the future when COVID is under control and maybe you can actually, cause you haven't physically met anyone yet. Right. So you have that to look forward to. I, yeah. So we're hoping um, we had to cancel our trip. So I'm hoping in July um, we will go to Seattle and oh. I'll be able to meet my sister. And so um, oh, we, we're looking at 2022 to visit Korea. So we have to stay in <laughs> touch because you deserve to have so much joy and peace and healing. And as we get ready to go, Heather, is there anything you haven't said that you would like to say and or if you have the ears of birth parents and adoptees and adoptive parents and helping professionals, which and hopefully society, whoever is listening, what do you want them to know about adoption? What what encouraging words can you give? What can you express from your experience that could be give hope and help to to the pain surrounding this very large issue? Um you know, I, I was very fortunate to work. I work for Apple and they're such a wonderful company. I actually gave a talk um, with the HR department to talk about um, means of adoption and things. And I made a top 10 list of things adoptees wish parents knew. But I mean, the crux of it really is to me that um, unconditional love means unconditional, no matter what um, your child brings to you, whether it's searching for a biological family 
whether it's not feeling, um, not feeling like they're a part of a, of a family. It's, it's, it's not a representation of you. You can't take it that personal. You've got to be there for them because sooner or later, that child may come at you with questions and, and you need to be prepared how you respond to it is, is whether or not they're going to stay with you to look for help with answers or if they're just going to start seeking everybody else for the answers. Because if you discount their feelings right away or say, well, that's, you don't need to feel that. Well, that's just silly. We love you very much. You know, of course you, we are a part of our family. If you discount the way they feel because the adoptees generally go through a, a harsh time of always feeling that other, of always feeling like they're not really a part. You're good, but there's still something and that everyone else is going to see you as other, even though your family might or your best friends might. The, the parents need to realize that child is always going to be seen as someone different first, and they have to deal with that. They have to deal with these, those emotions. So. But yeah, that unconditional love, it really, that's the word, the unconditional. It, it should be no matter. Yeah, I think that's put an exclamation point on that. And what about other adoptees, Heather? What can you say to them? Yeah, all of our journeys are different. We, and, you know, we, we have this cohesive feeling, what I call this Han the Koreans call it this emptiness, this generational pain, I think, that goes through many of us. Um, but everybody's experiences path is going to be different. And so it's important for you to know you well enough to be able to seek the healing that you need, be it the arts, be it a play, be it um, po poems, you know, how, song, how you can express yourself in painting to be able to make that healing process happen for yourself and, and seek it out because there's lots of us out there out here who would love to share in it and help you through your journey and talk you through your journey and, and let you know that you're not alone. Oh, Heather, this has been such an extraordinary experience with you. Thank you for telling us your story, for sharing your insights. And I just wish you well. And I'm so excited for the future to hear about your connection with your biological family. And I can't wait Aww. to see who, who your daughter marries. So. <laughs> Thank you so much for giving, um, giving us a platform and giving adoptees a platform to share. I think it's so important. It is my honor, my honor.